This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with Megan Camrick. Our guests today exemplify the idea of think globally, act locally. They focus on global issues while working in their own communities on issues of peacemaking and connecting with others around the world. Both are based in New Mexico, where our program is headquartered as well. Today, Megan Camrick talks with members of the New Mexico Peace Choir and a little bit later on, World War II vet and longtime social justice activist Sally Alice Thompson. First, though, the New Mexico Peace Choir, which began in 2015, singing inspiring songs about nature, social awareness, the human spirit, and peace. It's one of just a handful of such choirs in the United States, but it's actually part of a larger global community of peace choirs. The New Mexico group was invited to be part of the Great War Symphony at Carnegie Hall in November of 2018. That work was created to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I. Megan Camerick spoke with the choir's founder, Christy Conduff. But Megan will start with a question for two board members who also sing in the Peace Choir, Kenneth Mayers and Holly Kinley, after we hear an excerpt from one of the choir's performances of a composition called Stand Together, which they'll all talk about in a moment. Thank you. 
can you give some examples or your fondest memories of you know how you've the effect you've had on audiences? One of them in a recent concert was quite remarkable. Uh, we were singing a, a song that uh, stand together, and when you got into the last part of it, when there's just this almost this explosion of sound of we'll stand together. And someone in the audience stood up and another, and then suddenly the whole audience was standing up. Actually made it a little hard to say. <laughs> you get a little overclamped. <laughs> Absolutely. But uh, extraordinary experience. Mm. It was fun because the choir could, of course, see this happening, and Christy could not. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, it was the last song of the of the set of the season, and I'm thinking, oh, you know, they're sad, or you know, what's going on? There's there are tears up there. It's like they're emotional. It's the end of the season, and I, and like, I'm directing, going, what is going on with the choir? They're so emotional, and uh, you know, finished it, and they were like, turn around, turn around, turn around, and I looked, and it was like every place. You know, we often get standing ovations, but this one started well before mm. the end of the song. And it was just this remarkable, oh, my gosh, we are doing the same. We're doing the right thing. People are involved. They come up afterwards, and they're just hugging me, complete strangers, just crying and holding on to me, saying how much they needed what we do. They loved the sound, but they loved the energy of it and the emotion of it. And it helps. That was a moment. And so it happened at the last concert of the season. And then it happened again when we sang at the Roundhouse the, the state second legislature day of, yeah. in Santa Fe, and the second really? day of the second day of the uh, legislative session, and they did stand again, and we were we were pretty stunned. What is the song? It's called "Stand Together." It is a, a piece by Jim Papoulis, mm-hmm. and it's just this call to responsibility, call to if we work together, there's hardly anything that we can't fix or make better. Mm-hmm. We just need to work together. We need to listen to one another. We need to find those ways to incorporate peace. We need to find ways. And if we work together, if we stand together, we can make a difference. And the entire audience in both of those settings, the, the first one was, what, 400 people, 500 people on their feet to stand together with us in our message. And uh, it was a lesser number of people at the, at the roundhouse, but not a lesser amount of energy and thankfulness for that opportunity to stand and, and do something. Even if it's just standing up, it is doing something and joining our hearts. Christy, how did Peace Choir start? <laughs> it is this interesting question that has uh, a lot of answers. I have um, have been a church choir director for the majority of my life and just kind of came to a place. I was actually at the Unitarian Universalist Church up in Santa Fe where I met these two. And I was a choir director there, and funding became an issue. And um, it was like, you know, it's just time. It's just time to do something on my own, different, not under the the thumb of a church. And these two, we all kind of sat down, and it's like, I've always wanted to do a different choir. And I think, Holly, I think you're the one that came up with the name of the Peace Choir. Uh And we didn't have any real direction at that point. We just wanted it didn't. I didn't want to have an interfaith choir. I didn't have, want it to be religious. I didn't want it to be political. I just wanted to be able to sing really beautiful music. So we just kind of started this thing, and I sent out a, an email to past choir members to see if who wanted to come sing. And we had like I think it was 52 people show up the first night, and we've just been growing ever since. It became this thing. It became a movement more than just a choir. We've been to Europe, we've been to Carnegie Hall, we've done an amazing amount of things, just kind of starting on this 
um, idea and it has become rather than having the idea what we're going to do first is morphed into something quite wonderful. Did you have in mind the idea, I want a choir focused on peace, conflict resolution, or something like that? Well, we wanted to to sing beautiful music that would touch the heart, that would have something to do about the environment, taking care of the planet, taking care of each other. And then the music just started rolling in. We could find music to fit that. There's so much out there if you really look, that doesn't have to be on a religious side. And, but it seems like of late we've taken a little bit more of a political turn, not because we intentionally wanted to do that, but because that's where the state of everything is right now. This country is in such turmoil and people need hope. And so we sing songs of hope and encouragement. We try to find music that when you're singing it, you feel it touches the soul. And if it touches our soul, then it can't help but communicate to the audience that comes to hear it. And that's what we strive for, is to have a community with the choir that's really pretty much family. We kind of take care of each other as well as sing these songs to as many as eight or 900 people in a season for a concert. And people come up afterwards and they're crying often, just hugging, saying how, how touched they are, how they needed the music that we sing. And... I never know quite what's going to touch someone's soul. I just know that if I really love the piece and it either makes me laugh or cry or think, and I know that I can do it for several months um, with my attention span, then we we sing that music and it becomes it always becomes more than I think it ever could, which is really exciting. I love that part of it, that people pull from the music what they need. Ken, you are involved in, I know, some Veterans for Peace and other efforts. What drew you to this choir? Well, I've been singing one place or another most of my life. Uh, So I was encouraged to sing, and I sang all through school and college and have sung in various groups and choirs since. I wasn't singing in the UU, in the Unitarian Universalist Choir, until Christie became director. And the first time I heard the choir sing under her direction. I said, now that that's a choir I could join. As you mentioned, I'm very active in Veterans for Peace, and a lot of my life, frankly, is protesting uh, here and abroad. And the Peace Choir rounded that off and gave it kind of makes my life whole, and it's not just protest. It's so much affirmative and the responses we get are so affirmative uh, that it, uh, it's, it's just a delight. It's just this wonderful, positive experience. Holly, Kinley, you're on the board as well, and you're also singing in the choir. Why does doing this bring you joy? I'm not a longtime choir person, but I am a longtime social justice freedom person, and I love to sing. So this was an opportunity to bring together these two parts of my life. Another part of my life is that I'm I'm an entrepreneur by experience. So this was starting something new, and I love to do that. So it, it feeds my creativity, my need to be creative, both in the singing and in how we manage the the choir. Have you both found that doing this feeds your other peacemaking work? I certainly have in a couple of different ways. One is that if my energy is dragging a little bit, the singing restores it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And 
I encourage, obviously, fellow activists to come hear us sing and get themselves refreshed as well. Uh, and I try to bring some of the message of what I'm doing to, uh, to the Peace Choir as well. Not quite the same for me. There are only so many hours in a day. <laughs> and as you probably know, we memorize all of our music. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Why is that important? Ooh. <laughs> let me ju- let me let me okay. let me <laughs> needs to address okay. that. Okay. All right. Uh, Which is unlike a lot of choirs. Yes. We usually have our music in front of us when I've sung in choirs. It is, it is true, and that music in front of you is a barrier. It's so exciting to have the choir memorize the music so that they can really, really watch me. And if they can really watch me, then sometimes in the middle of a performance even, I will change something up because I know I can. And something moves me, and I can feel it differently, and we sing it differently, and I've got them. And then when they are singing this new thing, it's like this whole new energy happens. And when they're having this communication, with me and I can have this we're totally one totally one I have every eye then the the people who are listening out in the audience they're having a, a different experience they can actually look at people's eyes when they're singing they can enjoy this conversation that's happening between me and the choir and then it becomes this cyclical thing that happens that the audience is brought in to what we're singing and it becomes this gigantic goosebump moment of everybody is one There's uh, data that shows that everybody, when a choir sings together, their hearts beat as one. They synchronize. The hearts beat as one. The music becomes exciting, and it becomes more meaningful. And further data shows that the people who are listening, if they're really involved, which they can be when we're out of the music because it is so intense, then their heartbeats joins ours. And so I can't help but think that if everybody in a room, hundreds of people, if their heartbeats are beating as one, that something miraculous is happening. So that's why I make them memorize, so we can really, really sing this stuff. Why is it important right now in the times we live in to create this kind of experience within the choir and with your audience? I'd like to say that people don't change their how they live or what they do because they read a newspaper article or a magazine article or a book. They change because something changes in their hearts. So music speaks to all of us. It speaks to our whole being. It isn't an intellectual experience for the listener. It's an emotional experience. And that's what has to happen for change to happen in the world. Both of those issues have to be addressed. How do you find the music? It is a journey. Um, My goodness, I get really excitedly right now. We have three different composers who are courting us to write for us. that's impressive. I know, I know, I know. Um, So that's going to be fun. I I look on YouTube. I go through J.W. Pepper, um, the Clearinghouse of Music. People send me ideas of things that they think that might work. It's copiously long process to find the ones. And they always kind of make... There's a story, and I I do introduce pretty much every song to tell them why I picked it in the moment of the the concert, to tell them why I think it's important. And I think people like that. They Mm -hmm. they want to have that connection, why it's not just song after song, go, that was a pretty song. It's like, oh, oh, that, wow, I get that now. Some of the history of the song or history of why it was chosen. I know the choir went to Europe for the World Peace Choir Festival, so you're part of a global movement. There are peace choirs around the world? 
There are. Not so many here in the United States, though. Holly, why don't you take that one? There are a few Peace Choirs in the U.S. We are the only one in the Southwest, and we might be the largest one in the country. Hmm. Um, There's a Peace Choir in Seattle. There's a small one in Duluth, perhaps some in the East Coast, but they seem to be mostly in the Northwest. We are hoping that we will be able to collaborate with another Peace Choir sometime, perhaps to do some kind of a conference here in Albuquerque where we bring together multiple Peace Choirs. Megan Kamrick will have more with members of the New Mexico Peace Choir after this break on Peace Talks Radio. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today along with Megan Kamrick. In a few moments, we'll meet a World War II vet and for even longer a time, a social justice and peace activist named Sally Alice Thompson. But right now, let's pick up on Megan Kamrick's conversation with members of the New Mexico Peace Choir. She's talking with the choir's founder, Christy Condov, as well as two other members, Ken Mayers and Holly Kinley. What was it like when you went to Europe and you met all these other people who were doing peace choirs? This sounds like a movement. That know. particular year, most of the choirs, most of the singers that were there were young people. And it was delightful because we were the grown-ups, And they really looked to us for a continuity, and they could see the possibility in their young lives of singing in a peace choir when they were adults. Um, It was a lot of fun. Hmm. It was chaotic and a lot of fun at the same time. One of the great experiences was that the night we got there, there was a, uh, a party for all the peace choirs in this large outdoor space, gardens, and Every once in a while, you'd hear one of the other choirs singing a little bit over there and a little bit over here. And a group of young choir people from Taiwan came and serenaded us uh, where we were sitting. And so we sang back for them. Uh, And at the end of of our days in Vienna, right after the concert, we were all greeting each other as we were departing. And these absolutely adorable young uh, Taiwanese kids came over and they all want selfies together and get (laughs) autographs and all that. It was was just a marvelous experience. Give us presents. One of our choir members speaks Mandarin and they were able to understand each other even though it wasn't precisely Mm -hmm. their language. So 
that added another layer that made our choir particularly fun for them to talk to. Christy, I, I think you had a vision or a dream. Oh, the dream. About singing <sighs> in front of a stained glass window, and then you found this window yeah, in Prague That is um, on that trip. Yeah, long, 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 many years ago, I, I knew that I would have a choir at some point. I just didn't know the, the logistics of it, and, and it, it morphed into what it is. But in the heyday of what am I going to do? This, the funding on this job is, is going away. This other job is, needs to go away, and I need to direct. I just truly need to direct. And tr- one night, in the middle of the night, I had this Technicolor, brightest, I can still remember it to this day, dream of directing a choir standing in front of a gorgeous round stained glass window. Blues and reds, some purple, uh, had stone gray walls on either side of it. And we were singing a song called Earth Song that is from the Earth's perspective, how we have not taken very good care of her and how music is what is sustaining the Earth. And I, I woke up just in chills, you know, head to toe, this was that a dream? Oh my gosh, it was so colorful and so memorable. And I don't really remember my dreams as a as a general rule. And I woke up and, and had this, oh, okay, there will be a choir and wow, we're singing in Europe. Wow. And I went right back to sleep. And I remember that to this day, it's probably five-year-old dream now. And so we went to Prague and we weren't supposed to go to Prague. Originally, we were going to go to Salzburg and the uh, director that was planning all the trip for us said, well, have you ever been to Prague? And it's like, no. So I really think you should go to Prague. Like, okay. Well, we did Vienna first, and then we went to Prague, and we were at, where were we? St. Vitus Cathedral. St. Vitus Cathedral in Prague. And I looked up, and there was this gigantic window, but it didn't look anything like, you know, it had bars on the outside. It seemed very dark. And we went inside, and the choir was divided into two groups because we were large. Um, to go through this tour and I rounded the corner at the back where the pews were and I turned around and it was like holy moly that is that's it I was just were you with me on that group Mm -hmm. I don't remember who was with me in that group because I was just stunned I stood there and it was like that that is that's my window and I turned around to somebody and said I need my choir and we sang earth song underneath this window which turns out to be called the creation of the earth is the name of the window you cannot make this kind of stuff up. It is all true. And we sang that. And then we sang in Kutnahora. And that we sang Earth Song up in the top of a, the choir loft. We weren't supposed to be there either because it was raining when we got there. So they said, oh, you're going to have to sing in the choir loft. I was like, oh, darn. And went up top. And it was gorgeous acoustics. We sang that. One of our guys put his phone down, recorded it. That went on our website. And that was our audition piece, unbeknownst to us, to sing at Carnegie Hall. The most fun on that whole trip was singing in the plazas. <laughs> when we and the, <laughs> one of the true. songs in of our in our repertoire is called "Connected," and the basses start out singing "I am you are me." It's a chant, and then the tenors join, and then the altos and sopranos. We can sing that with keeping one eye on Christy, and we went around sh- greeting people on the plaza. Flash mob. We flash mobs. Flash mobs, greeting people, shaking their hands, all the while we are singing. 
and it was mind-blowing to them. And a big crowd would gather around. So that by the time we got to the end of the song, we had an audience. We did that all over the place. We did that in, in three different palaces in Vienna. We did that in front of the statue of Beethoven across the street from the concert hall. In and, Vienna. Yeah. In airports. <laughs> Why is this such an effective way to connect people and reach people and overcome barriers? The music speaks to people's hearts, and they can see that we are completely open. They open up. They get teary. And this was in the summer of 16. No, summer of seven, 17. 17. Barely. And people yeah. were nervous about Americans in Europe at that time. And so they were very happy to see Americans who were talking about peace hmm. and singing about peace. And this led to Carnegie Hall. It did. It, it truly did. The composer Patrick Hawes of the Great War Symphony specifically wanted peace choirs to sing this because it was the 100-year anniversary of, of Armistice, the ending of, of World War One, And he reached out to me personally to see if there would be a, a portion of the choir that could come. He listened to Earth Song on our website and thought that we would be such a good addition. And indeed, we took 40 singers um, out of our 80. I mean, half the choir went. We sang our little hearts out for him and it was it was a fine experience. Carnegie Hall, I mean, wow. Yeah. Can't yeah. get much better than that. Nope. I heard you say in an interview, Christy, that it's not just a choir, it's a movement. Well, Ken actually found that what is that poem? No, that, I, I, well, I had said that uh, an army travels on its stomach, but a movement travels on its songs. Once we heard that, it was like, that is that is actually true, because it's not just about singing the songs. It's not just about having a concert. I mean, we're out and about a lot. We sang at rallies. We sang for the immigration, uh, the children who are still still being you know held at the border. And we, we take a stand, but in a way that is not an angry stand. It's just we are here, and we, we want to help. And None of us are politicians. None of us probably want to be politicians. But what we can do is we can sing. We can sing from our hearts. And somehow that openness and, and the words that, that are in the songs and the words that are said before the songs, it 
draws people in and they they join us in the spirit of what we're doing. And I think that's a whole lot of why we're so ex- successful. There are so many choirs that anybody can sing in in this city and Santa Fe and there are a million places people could, could go. And these people come every week to work hard and, and find that community with us. And also because it is so much fun. The concerts, while a ton of work, the payoff of having people stand in the middle of a song or come up to um, any choir member, all choir members, and just hug them out of the blue and say how much we, we needed what you had to say. It's fulfilling, hugely fulfilling. You always sing a song at your concert called We Can Be Kind. We do that. Why is that your signature piece? Well, it's always been one of my favorite songs in the whole world. It speaks to we all have choices every day, how we can respond to something. And if this world were a gentler, kinder place because of our responses, then we would be in a totally different world, I think, right now. So it's like nobody really wants to fight. Nobody really wants to go to war. And so what can we do? We can help each other. We can be kind. We can be aware of what's going on with other people and help them. It's It's been a signature piece. We'll probably always do it. Um, we're, some more, more songs are coming in to become really strong pieces. One this, this season is called Until All of Us Are Free. And it's just this major piece about we all we all need the same thing but we need to be free and so we're we sing we just sing we just sing from our hearts i want to share a little story about the we can be kind song uh one of our choir members had sang that at a rehearsal or a concert and it really got to her and then she got on a bus and the only other person on the bus was obviously a homeless person and looking pretty down and out. And she said normally she would have avoided that person and sat in another part of the bus. But because the song was in her head, she smiled at the man, connected with him, sat down fairly near him, and felt his appreciation of her friendliness and her kindness. So it got passed on. The importance of kindness got passed on, and perhaps he passed it on to somebody else later that day. What lies in store for the Peace Choir, for the future? It sounds like you've grown very quickly in a short amount of time. The the trajectory has been astounding, yeah. Um, I can't tell you that I know what the big next thing is. I know that we're getting ready to start our new season, but we never know because we're open. We may be called to go to the border. We may be called to do whatever. And if it's at all possible for us to respond, we will. And I have a dream that we do um, a multimedia event at some point that is not just a concert, but has some theater pieces in it. Um, perhaps relating to New Mexico's history and unique culture, um, or perhaps something else, who knows. But I would like to see us consider that kind of a possibility. Very good. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking with us. Delighted to be here. Our pleasure. Everyone wants to
part of the New Mexico Peace Choir performance of the composition We Can Be Kind. Megan Camrick was talking with Christy Conda, founder and director of the choir, and two board members who also sing in the Peace Choir, Kenneth Mayers and Holly Kinley. Next, we meet Sally Alice Thompson, who spent much of her life working for peace. After this break on Peace Talks Radio. It's Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We're online with all of our programs in our series going back to 2002 at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, and you can find our podcast on iTunes. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls today with Megan Camrick. Next, we meet Sally Alice Thompson, who spent much of her life working for peace. 95 years old at the time of our conversation, she slowed down a little physically, but her dedication to peace remains undiminished. Sally Alice grew up poor in the Great Depression. Her father was a conscientious objector in World War I and was imprisoned for it. But the promise of steady work and three meals a day and maybe a touch of teenage rebellion led Sally Alice to join the Navy in World War II. After her service, she went on to marry and became a teacher in Albuquerque. Eventually, she returned to the pacifism of her father. She and her husband started the Albuquerque chapter of the Veterans for Peace and became charter members of the Albuquerque Peace and Justice Center. Sally Alice recently moved to her retirement facility, and there she told Megan Camrick that the shift in her attitude on peace and justice came late in the Vietnam War. Finally, I woke up to lies that we were being told. Ever since then, I've been... A peace activist. What was it like going to your first protest? It was a march down Ridgecrest Avenue. (laughs) In Albuquerque? In Albuquerque. What did it feel like? It felt strange because it it was such a a shift in thinking. Was there a particular event during the Vietnam War that sort of turned you around? No, it was just kind of a gradual evolution. Just time after time after time, seeing that we were being misled about what was happening. And then when I went to Nicaragua during the Contra War. In the 1980s? Yes. I really was awakened to the falsehoods and the how we are blinded about what's, what's really going on. Because I, I saw what was going on down in Nicaragua and it was not pretty. And they came up, came back home, and read the papers, and it was just the exact opposite of what was really going on. And then that was my the final blow to to my uh, accepting what was 
put out by the government. What took you down there? I went on a work brigade with pick, picking coffee, and then I was went back again on another brigade to help build a schoolhouse, and then I went to a, a Spanish language school. What was the draw to go down there? There was a, a woman who came to Albuquerque and sang at the Unitarian Church, and she had been there, and uh, she talked to me and said that I should go. And I thought about it, and I, yes, I thought that was right, I should go. So I went. You wanted to see for yourself? Yes. I know you and your husband founded the Albuquerque chapter of Veterans for Peace. Why do veterans have a specific insight that makes them good peacemakers? The combat veterans are the real voice of the Veterans for Peace because they know what's been going on and what terrible crimes are being committed and their consciences can't stand that so they work against it and the rest of us who are not combat veterans have to agree with them. They know the terrible, terrible situation of of war and, and how all the wars are one-sided just because we have quote superior armaments doesn't make us good people so we just we're opposed to to, uh, violence and exploitation did uh your piecework influence how you taught kids in school yes i i tried to install the idea of justice in the students, and I think that I was successful to to a reasonable extent. You did a lot of traveling in the 80s. You went went on a peace march to Washington? I went went on a peace march across the country from Los Angeles to New York and then down to Washington. How long did that take? Eight and a half months. It was to protest nuclear weapons and to... uh, try to get nuclear disarmament. What did you do in Washington when you got there? We had a a big finale at the uh, Mirror Pool by the Washington Monument. Why do you uh, feel it's important to keep doing these kinds of marches, even though it seems like we don't make progress sometimes? We have to do what little we can. If we don't do anything, it's going to be worse than it is. Sometimes it feels hopeless, but but always we have to maintain a little hope. (laughs) You also went to the Soviet Union and did a march? Yes. When we were doing the march across the country, a lot of times truckers would yell at us, why don't you do this in Russia? And so there was a a young man on the march named uh, Alan Affelt who... uh, said, yes, why don't we do this in Russia? And he was very enterprising. He managed to get visas for for the people who wanted to go and uh, made arrangements to to get citizens of the Soviet Union involved. We had uh, 200 Americans and 200 citizens of the Soviet Union on a march from uh, what was then called Leningrad. Now it's called St. Petersburg, to Moscow. We had a 4th of July celebration in Moscow. (laughs) What was it like? 
the the young people of Russia were just so enthusiastic about having Americans that were with them instead of hating them. And as a matter of fact, people of all ages welcomed us with open arms at every village that we stopped. People would come out, bring us flowers, bring us little trinkets of things that they valued, and then they gave them to us. At, at every village, they brought out huge loaves of bread, flat bread, about 14 inches in diameter, with a hole in the middle and a little vase with salt in the, in the hole in the middle. And bread and salt was their symbol of welcome. I, th I think that was probably really one of the highlights of my life was meeting with those Russian people that were so tired of war and so happy that there were Americans that were, wanted peace. How have you tried to do that since then? One of the people that I met on that march was a, a man from Turkmenistan, one of the Soviet republics at that time. And uh, he and I compared notes about our cities, and uh, we decided to be, become sister cities. So we still are a sister city with Ashgabat, Turkmenistan, and uh, it's an ongoing project. Have you, and have you gone there? I think I've been there about 29 times. Initially, that was the only way I could find out what was going on over there because telephone service was just awful and there wasn't any email at that time. And so one time I went over there and stayed for four weeks. So I would really experience the, the uh, life of the people of Turkmenistan. There has been a big evolution in Turkmenistan. They call themselves a democracy, but they're, unfortunately they're not. They're, it's, a, it's very definitely a dictatorship. When we think about other countries like that, we're like, oh, it's a dictatorship. But the kind of program you're doing where you're going and staying and visiting, you actually get to meet the people. So the country's not just the government, it's the people you meet. Why is that so important in peacemaking? It's the only thing that's open to us, people-to-people -people kinds of things, because government-to-government -government is down the drain. <laughs> Both their governments and our government are, are not interested in the people, but the people can still be interested in the people, and, and they're wonderful people over there. Yeah. Were you involved with protests around uh, the Iraq War? Oh, yes, absolutely. The, the Peace Center. The Albuquerque Peace and Justice Center. Yeah, the Al Albuquerque Peace and Justice Center was very much opposed to the both invasions, Afghanistan and Iraq. Before, at the beginning of the war, it could be very unpopular to oppose it. Did you run into that? Yes. Yeah, you always do. <laughs> At the beginning, at the middle, and the end, you run into opposition because people are propagandized and brainwashed. You've continued doing this, you know, into your 90s. You're 95 now? Yes. You went, I think, a few years ago on another walk from Albuquerque to Santa Fe of 13 days. 
yes. to protest money in politics. Why yes. did you want to do that? Until we get money out of politics, we're going to continue in the same bad path that we're in because the votes for lawmaking are in favor of militarism and, and well, violence mm-hmm. <laughs> that are profitable. That's what our economy is about, is, is about war making and destruction and killing rather than constructive things like schools and hospitals. And Wasn't it difficult to walk 13 days? Were you 91? Yes. And you can't, what did you do overnight? I was offered home hospitality every night. I slept in a bed, and then I would go back to where I was, where I left off the day before, and continue. You could have driven to Santa Fe and rallied in front of the roundhouse. Why was it important to walk? Nobody would have known anything about it if I'd driven. (laughs) Hardly anybody knew about it when I walked (laughs) because the the papers didn't give it much emphasis. And one TV station mentioned it, and unfortunately they said that the purpose of the walk was to cut government spending, (laughs) which really made me angry because I I don't think we should cut government spending except what we call defense, which should be cut radically. (laughs) You were also involved in the Raging Grannies. What is that? Well, it's a, a group of women that put on silly hats and long skirts and sing songs that are against the war, against injustice. We write new words to old songs so we can pass them around. We have what we call gaggles of grannies all over the country. They started in Canada. They were protesting nuclear weapons. They did it because they kept trying to talk to reporters and media about the problems and uh, didn't get any response. So they decided if they acted a little outrageously that they would get more attention, and, and they did. It's spread all over the country now. Why did you want to do that particular kind of protest? Because I agreed that we had to find new innovative ways to bring the message to people that the present situation is is not acceptable. Well, it's funny because it challenges the stereotype of little old ladies who don't really do anything, so it kind of takes that and reverses it. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I write a lot of the songs. Do you still perform them? Yes, absolutely. We, we sing every Tuesday at Golden Fourth in Albuquerque. Why do you choose that day, that time, that place? Well, that's where the offices of the congressional delegation are. That's why we choose that place. The time is because it's a noon hour. People are out of their offices for lunch, so they, they see us and hear us. Do you ever have people stop and listen or ask you questions? Once in a while, not often enough. It's like in the song Blowing in the Wind, how many times can a man turn his head pretending he just doesn't see? 
You also went to uh, protest at President Bush's ranch in Texas yes. right, during the war. Cindy Sheehan lost her son. She was demanding of the president that he tell her what noble purpose it was that she had lo lost her son for. But again, he turned his head. He pretended he just didn't see. It can be a lonely life trying to be a peacemaker. Maybe not lonely, but frustrating if you're waiting to see results of well, what you do. <laughs> Sometimes it seems like it'll never happen, but we have to remember that women's right to vote, it was 100 years, and it finally happened. So we just have to keep at it and keep at it and hope that eventually we're going to have results. What other issues are you focusing on? I am in a, an action group called Ending Wars and, and Occupation, and we are honing in on the idea that, that the reason that people are willing to accept the terrible indignity of, of keeping these wars going is that they are told that it's necessary for the economy. We are working on the idea that we must change from a war economy to a peace economy because we could circulate the money just as well with nonviolent, productive things as we're doing with violent, uh, non-productive, and destructive things. We've got to change this idea of American exceptionalism. There are two very, very serious consequences of, of the idea of American exceptionalism, and that is sanctions of other countries and regime change. We don't have any right, any universal right, to declare sanctions on other countries. But because we, we are exceptional, we do it. We don't have a right to go in and say, you can't be president even if you were elected because we want somebody to, uh, that will do our bidding. Throughout all your years, you've continued to do this. Why has it been important for you personally, even if it seems like there aren't changes? What what does it mean for you to keep doing it? Well, there have been changes. Some things have improved, so that gives me hope. I mean, the idea that we're accepting gay marriage, for example, if we keep, keep on keeping on, it's going to pay off eventually. That's where I am, and I, I hope that that can be broadly accepted, especially by the young people because they're the ones that it's important for them, because they're the ones that are going to be living with it. There have been some bad setbacks, but at the same time, there's a glimmer of hope. <laughs> You're a charter member in the Peace and Justice Center here. Why was that important for you and your husband to do that? We need to unite as much as possible, and uh, having a physical place to meet and an identity. There are many, many people that, that feel like you do and like I do, but if we don't have any any way to connect, we feel isolated. To have a have a physical place seems to be very important to me. Even though we have those phones and things and the internet. Y yeah, 
It's still a, a connection that's very valuable, I, I think. You can't travel much anymore as you used to all over yeah. the world, but how do you hope to keep connections with people in other countries and here in our community? Well, I, I am doing a little bit of traveling. I went to the uh, Encuentro at, at Nogales. It was a, a conglomeration of a lot of different groups. And the one that I'm most connected with is the uh, School of America's Watch. What did you do down there? We had workshops, and the most important thing was connection with people from all over the country. What was the focus of the workshops? There was one about deported veterans. There were a lot lot of others. It was was about immigrants and about uh, the School of America's Watch. The focus was on immigration issues and the border and people coming across for asylum. Yes. Why did you want to stay involved in those particular issues? Because the people of Central America are being terribly, terribly treated, unjustly treated, and we need to change that in any way we can. You know, there's a lot of asylees coming through Albuquerque right now. Oh, yeah. When I was living in my house, I was hosting them for a night or two. I uh, took care of quite a number of them Mm. from Central America. Mm -hmm. I just got to the point where I didn't have enough room and I was tired, so I just came over here. (laughs) Some people might think, I mean, I, I mean, Dorothy Day always rejected, people would say, oh, you're a saint. And she said, no, you shouldn't say that because then people think they can't do what I'm doing. Do you ever feel that way, that well, what you're doing is not unusual? Everybody can do this. I, I just feel like there, there are people that have done so much more than I have that, <laughs> that what I've done is in, pretty much insignificant. I've done what I could, which I, I'm happy about, but... I admire people who have been picked out of a subject and stuck with it and done it year after year after year. Sally Alice Thompson singing there with the Raging Grannies on the streets in Albuquerque. You can hear more from Sally Alice Thompson and Megan Kamrick's complete interview with her at our website, peacetalksradio.com. And that's where you go to hear extended interviews from all of our guests on all of our shows, plus the shows themselves dating back to 2002. You'll find photos, transcripts, other links and resources there as well. Plus a donate button, which you can use to help keep Peace Talks Radio going with your support, all at peacetalksradio.com. Supporters include George and Sherry Coynes, Betsy Christensen, in memory of her parents, John and Audrey, the Albuquerque Community Foundation Tides Fund, and the Spinal Health and Movement Center of chiropractor Ruben Ramirez in Albuquerque's Knob Hill neighborhood. Nola Daves-Moses is our executive director. Allie Adelman composed and performs our theme. For Megan Kamrick, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio and the radio stations that carry our show. (laughs) 